And what's the general length of time that they run? Like 30, 40 minutes? My episodes? Yeah. Um, what happens is when it gets to 30 minutes, that kind of is like my mental, like, okay, okay look it's for a good, a good out point. Okay, great. Which Perfect. takes about 15 minutes usually. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Okay, I totally get it. I, I mean, I'm Jewish, so there's the thing called the Jewish goodbye. Which... The, yeah, by the way, it's <laughs> the weird thing is, is I'm Cuban, and... There is not like cult religiously wild differences, whatever. But culturally, there's so many similarities that create. Because like I moved every year of my life, and mm-hmm. wherever we would move to, it was always the first. And we were like, you know, a like a Latino family with like, you know, my sister's married to a Chinese guy, and I'm gay, and all this stuff. Like we would, we the first friends we would always make, almost always, and the friends we've always kept the longest have always been the Jewish family friends. Like it's there's something <laughs> where the cultures are really similar, where like the family dynamics are really similar. I don't know, that sounds arbitrary, but in a weird way. So when you say that, I totally understand. And oh, so you get it. Any of my friends that are Jewish are like, well, you know, it's like this Jewish thing. I'm gonna be like, yeah, it's exactly it's, it's the same. It's a Cuban thing. <laughs> there's something where there's something commiserate around that. I don't know. That is interesting. Maybe it's the exile mentality <laughs> that formed the isolationism, <laughs> the, the victim complex. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it's a great it's a great way to start the episode. With a oh, great! Cultural yeah. similarities. I don't know, if, and it's it's yeah, it's arbitrary, but it has never failed. Where we always move, and that's where we. Or even when I make friends, it's I don't know what it is. There's some kind of there is something there that mm-hmm. that follows the same. I don't know. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, hello everyone. Welcome right. to episode twenty-five. Oh, nice. Of Side Kickback Radio, and I'm I'm here with Kyle Patrick Alvarez. Yes. Say hello, Kyle. Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle. <laughs> um, and it's uh, June 30th, 2015. So uh, this is an exciting day because I'm really excited to talk to you about all your work, uh, especially, of course, the Stanford Prison Experiment, which I'm sure you've been talking about ad nauseum. Yes, I have. A, a lot. Well, now, the movie comes out in like two and a half weeks or yeah. something, so then that, so it's really about to pick up. Yes, but, but yeah. hopefully this will be a new exciting way for you to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Since, it might already be, yeah. yeah. I mean, have you done a podcast yet in, no, with... Not with this movie. No, not with this movie. Not like, I haven't done like a long form thing yet. That's I think I, I did like a radio interview at Sundance, but that's different. That was like a minute yeah. and a half. Gotcha. Was that at Sundance TV or something? It was, no, it was, I did something for Sundance TV. Craig Zobel interviewed me and Phil Zimbardo, or Dr. Phil Zimbardo, uh, but it was just like a local radio station that's actually really, I've done it two years now, I, I think they always encourage people to do it, so. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, then I'm excited. This is going to be new for you, hopefully. Yeah, and if my as Owen tries as to my get dog, some my emergency. dog tries to start, yeah, drinking my emergency. <laughs> he doesn't want to get sick. <laughs> cool. So, um, before we get into he did not, he did not like it. <laughs> he's like he's doing like a lip smacking thing. <laughs> um, so before we get into Stanford, um, I'd love to kind of track how you got to this point. Yeah, which I think will be really exciting because I have some you know budding directors listening. Okay, great. And so, um, you're from Miami originally? Yeah, originally from Miami, uh, was born there, moved around a lot. So I lived in Europe for a little bit growing up, in Canada for a while, Mexico City, Chicago, Northern California. We moved a lot. Wow. Um, and, but my... Was it military? Uh, no, corporate. My dad was, was a corporate executive, so that just moves you around a lot. And, uh... And so we, but Miami is where both my, both my, my parents are Cuban immigrants. So Miami is sort of where all my family is. And I ended up going back there for college. It's the closest thing to like a hometown that I have, I guess. Uh, but, but I didn't grow up there necessarily. Okay. Well, then my next question will be interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, I love to talk about high school. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Because <laughs> it's so interesting for everyone. It's like the most defining thing. Even for the people who don't think it is, it's because exactly. they're in denial. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> 
Um, so what was your high school experience since you moved around a lot? Well, I was for, my dad was like determined to keep us in one place for me and my sister in one place for high school. So I actually uh-huh. stayed all four years in the same high school in Sacramento, near in the little suburbs outside of Sacramento. Um, it was very like suburban. It wasn't Elk Grove, was it? No, but not far away. Not okay. far away. It was Roseville, which is actually not too far. It's weird. I, I end up meeting, it's a pretty small neighborhood, but you meet a lot of people from Granite Bay or the area yeah. I was from. And, uh, but it was very like suburban dream or suburban nightmare depending on how you look at it you know like it was like a growing community strip malls were being like yeah. coming up everywhere it was a brand new high school um but it was it was good it was i i liked that i liked having had that like very like sort of disneyland version of high school you know where i was like very protected and i could like ride my bike to school and nice. i was in band and that kind of, you know what i mean i was like it was like i had i did lots of activities i was involved in journalism and uh, and got to sort of stay in the same place for those four years is actually, I think, yeah. very important to me. Um, so you mentioned journalism and, and band. Yeah. Were those kind of your main music? For... Music really was. Because I, did, I huh. did, like, I was in, like, this, I, I played French horn. Nothing exciting. I played French, <laughs> French horn in, like, the city symphony, the city youth symphony. Um, I played piano and jazz band. I played percussion in, band, like, marching band. Uh, and played French horn, uh, you know, or I mentioned that earlier in concert band as well. So I, that was like what I put most of my time into. I used to teach piano and French horn lessons for money and everything. And then journalism, we had this high school program that really, really picked up. Like it started the first year, we didn't even really know what we were doing. Yeah. It was weird because Stanford starts with a sequence of like a newspaper being put together. And the first year, that's how we, we didn't even have the computers to do it. You know, yeah. we were literally like <laughs> clipping it. It looked exactly like how we did it in the movie. And then, uh, so you were an expert on it, so you <laughs> knew what it had to look like. And then we had this great teacher, uh, Carl Gruba, who like grew the program exponentially in like a very short period of time. And it became this weird thing where like more people in the community read the high school newspaper. Like we were harder hitting than like not the Sacramento Whoa. Bee, but like <laughs> yeah. the local newspaper. Yeah. And so actually, the articles people would write were important. And and I and I, I did the entertainment stuff. I wrote like film criticism and things like that. But it was interesting to be a part of something that was actually a part of the. As much of the fabric of the school as it was also the community, it was really, it was really cool. Nice. Was, was yeah. there any particular article that you remember that like stood out in controversy or something? Nothing that I wrote, but there was definitely a few really interesting articles written about families. If I recall correctly, there was one about someone whose son had kind of disappeared, um, and and that was a local family, and that kind of grew into a big thing. And oh, there was another one. I think there was one weirdly about a guy who worked on campus who claimed to be the touring drummer for Journey when he was younger. And, like, everyone knew the story about him and thought it was so cool. If I, I think it was Journey. And then, like, we got a call in the newspaper room one day where someone was like, he's lying to you. <laughs> that's, like, another guy with the same name. So, it was, I mean, that's that, those aren't the really intense stories. But, but it was it was interesting to be sort of a part of these two things that, for me, even though I wasn't doing... There was, like, a broadcasting program, but I just wasn't... It wasn't really up my alley, like, TV and... Shooting like the news stories in the for the beginning of the class like wasn't that interesting to me and really the teamwork aspect I think of band and journalism and those those are the things that you really take with you is like the leadership aspects uh, the working together with people when some people don't want to be there <laughs> you know the, those quality those it was weird socially it was a lot of the same challenges that production is like not necessarily yeah. making a movie but especially like the the four weeks of production is like a really similar thing because you kind of have to get along and yeah. Um, you have to work together, and those are they're, they're similar in that way, like band and filmmaking, which is you have everyone kind of has to the best times on set is like when everyone has something to do. Like it's a complex camera move, so like the actors will have to be on time, the camera has to be on time, the AD has to be you know moving yeah. everyone, the lighting has to. When everyone has to contribute to one thing at one time, it feels great. 
to me. And I think it, it recreates that feeling of when you're like in marching band, you know, as, as cheesy as that sounds, there's something about the team mentality I really mm-hmm. love. Nice. Yeah. Well, so it, in those moments where you have everybody doing one thing at the, at the yeah. exact, for the exact same moment, is it like, for, for your sets, is it like high stress or is it like find your zone and then do it? Like high- It depends. I mean, because I haven't ever had the opportunity to do too many complex shots on, in my films, you know? Mm-hmm. So my first film had a, like, it was 15 minute take when we shot it and it's 12 minutes in the movie. Uh, we trimmed the heads and tails of it a bit. And that was really exciting because it's 12 minutes uncut scene. And, and you're it, referring to better with practice. Easier, easier with practice. Easier, yeah. Easier with practice. It's so, right. so many people call it better with practice. And I was like, maybe I should have called it better with practice. I don't know. It's weird. I think those are so interchangeable in people's yeah. heads, but, uh, they, um, yeah, we, yeah, we had this really long take. It's like it moved from like a dolly shot to a zoom lens shot and involved really just one actor for most of it and it was one of these sort of exciting moments where you hold your breath for like 15 minutes and everyone sort of has to deliver because you don't want someone to trip you know halfway through a 10 minute shot or something someone to make a sound and then the actor has to start again so in a weird way it challenges people to to sort of be on their game a little bit more um and then the second film cog had a couple shots nothing nearly as ambitious like that um that one was so much more of a run and gun and get everything we needed really quickly and then this one had a couple of difficult shots specifically there's one that's like a a crane shot looking down into the set and that one took a lot of like choreography it was like a big physical scene and so that was really exciting to do because it was like it was the first time i'd ever shot with a crane before and so we had this like techno crane that we rented just for this one shot we didn't even really know if the shot was going to work and i'm really happy with it it cut into the film really well and it doesn't feel it this was the first movie ever did really showy photography in you know where like the camera moves past a wall or moves into a set in a way it could and I'd, I'd always avoided those things and aired towards naturalism and so I was worried when we would get into the edit that I would just lose all these shots that we like planned and coordinated yeah. but really they actually all cut in so well that I'm hoping the next one I have more of that in it you know nice because, yeah um so we're getting a little ahead of a little ourselves. I got a, I know I realized that I was like oh I jumped ahead <laughs> no no it's totally fine we'll, we'll come back to it because I, I mean I really just I have this favorite question that I love to ask okay and I'm excited to ask you but sticking with high school for one more second, um, if you go back in time mm-hmm. and, and you look at your CD player or cassette player, what is inside of that? <laughs> this is what's really bad is that it would have been a CD player at the time. I'm not that old. <laughs> uh, you would only listen to cassettes when you're making mixtapes because we didn't have CD burners yet. I think I got a CD burner senior year of high school and then we started making CDs. Nice. Uh, Really, at the time, it was like classical music and movie scores is what really? I listen to. I'm making myself out to be like the nerdiest person, which I was. That's um, why I love this question. I love, I know. <laughs> I really loved, I went through most of junior high and high school just listening to classical music. Like, I loved Rachmaninoff. I loved Gershwin. I loved like more modern, you know, classical stuff. But I really, really, that's what I loved. Um, and then it wasn't until towards the end of my last year of school that I started like senior year I started listening to more like I got Fiona Apple's second album came out and that kind of drew me into things more strangely I think Tool Tool had an album come out and then I started really getting so it wasn't I was really into musicians that it wasn't like oh I liked rock or I liked a specific genre I liked musicians that were playing with music a little bit more so like you know she was Fiona Apple with her second album was working with John Bryan and there was all these big orchestrations and all these things in it and then Tool they do the most like fucked up time signatures and really percussive things and I was studying percussion at the time so I started getting drawn into that and then I remember my at my summer after graduation, I listened to Radiohead a little bit because Kid A had come out, but uh, I forgot to bring my CD player on this European trip I did with a bunch of friends. And my mm-hmm. friend had, uh, I think she just had OK Computer maybe, 
on her CD player. And I remember listening to it from beginning to end. She like lent it to me on a train ride. And I was like, oh my God. And I probably spent the next like three years of my life just like listening to radio. I had nonstop. As most people did. I was just a couple yeah. of years behind. So guess, yeah. now, but yeah, so it's weird. I, I mean, I still listen to classical music, but I don't seek it out. Now it's, I probably have the same taste as most other indie filmmakers do. Like <laughs> same like indie musicians and, yeah. you know, sort of edgy stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I went through a really long classical music phase. <laughs> nice, nice. Don't be ashamed. No, but you know, it really helped, you know, it really helped me like working. This is the first, the Stanford jumping ahead a bit was the first yeah. time I ever worked. I'd worked with a composer for some cues on my, pre- one cue on my first film and a couple on my second film. Actually, on my second film, it was with a guy that I was played music with in band in high school. But this is was the first Steve time I... Steve Reich? Steve Reich. Well, Steve Reich, we used a lot of his music. Yeah. Um, and he's, but then we, we filled in a couple of cues. My friend Joe Perry filled in a couple of cues in the style of Steve Reich. So Got we kind of had a combination. But this was the first film I really worked with just a composer from beginning to end mm-hmm. and no source cues. Uh, and, and it was it was it was a good experience to have had a little bit of you know when you have a little bit of musical knowledge or yeah, a little bit of knowledge totally. of movie scores it goes a long way yeah sure yeah cool so after high school you go on to University of Miami yeah uh, where you study English uh, yeah well I studied film production and English literature they made you I don't know if they still do but they made you do like a liberal arts thing at the same time like if you're in the school of communication where film is you also have to get like a math degree or an English uh-huh. degree. Um, and so I did English. I started in English creative writing, but if you've ever been in a creative writing class that's like undergrad and it's not, it's like creative writing 101, it just becomes like a bunch of people who have opinions on things they haven't really read. It just wasn't like an engaging thing for me. Uh-huh. And I thought, God, I don't think I can do four years of this. And so I switched to literature where I, f- I feel like I learned more actually. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, I went, yeah, I went to UM. I applied to a bunch of colleges. I kind of messed up. I kind of freaked out, even though I had a good GPA and like an okay SAT scores. Uh, mm-hmm. I kind of didn't think I would get into anywhere, so I applied to like probably like you know too many places, which is the first thing I did. The thing I did with my first film too, uh-huh. where I was like worried we wouldn't get into a single film festival, so, so I applied to like a hundred of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, and I and it was weird. I got into NYU and I got into the Tisch program there, and it was sort of like a dream in a weird way. Like that's what I wanted, but I was visiting UM and I'd grown up there and. I'd learned how to swim in the pool there and everything. I don't know. It was one of those weird things. It was the first time in my life where I did the, I didn't do the thing I should have done or I had prepared myself for, which would have been to go to New York and go to film school in New York. And instead I was like, you know what? This just felt right. I just trusted my gut. And ultimately I think that was better for me. Uh, Not to say that UM was easy, but it was a more like curated experience. Like it was as hard as I wanted to make it to be. And I needed that after being like one of these like addictive students who didn't sleep and who was determined to get A's and everything, whatever. I needed that like a kind of experience of like, of trying to focus on the education you create for yourself a little bit more than the fixation on grades and things like that. So actually going to UM was, was like defining in a lot of ways for me because I went against the, the, it was the first time I sort of went against the path that I was setting up for myself, you know? Yeah. And I'd imagine the football thing was probably lost on you. Oh yeah. I mean, my, you know, my dad went to UM and he like lives for the football program there. He's like really involved with it and loves it. Goes to every game. I would just be able to keep score because I could hear people cheering in the dorm buildings. Like when it was away <laughs> games, I would be like, okay, well we just won. Or if it was upset, I could like legitimately keep a mental track of what the score probably <laughs> and was. You knew the levels but, between a field goal. And, and a, yeah, exactly. I only went, I went to one game, I think the whole four gotcha. years there. And it wasn't antagonistic towards it. I just didn't, I remember we started playing Halo. This was when it was just Xbox before 360, and nice you could you're a gamer. Yeah, oh yeah, big time. <laughs> and but we, you couldn't. They hadn't started Xbox Live yet, or they had, but it was really, uh, 
it was really, you know, not a developed program yet. But if you were on the school's network in the dorms, you could play with other people in the dorms. So my my roommates were like obsessed with the football team, and we would get onto the network and play Halo, like these big, you know, four and four matches at the time that was big, uh, with the football players who were like two stories who all lived on like the seventh floor of this one building or yeah. something like that, and so. There was this weird thing where the, everyone would kind of freak out. Oh my god, we're playing against this guy. You can tell from like their usernames, uh, but but that's but, but other than that, I didn't really keep track of the football program. <laughs> other than that, other than Halo, yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, okay, so then you graduate from University of Miami, yeah. with this degree in English literature and film production, yeah, and then then I moved to LA right away. Right away, I, okay. yeah, I had sort of I think I stayed in, in Miami for like a couple of weeks. I had at one point, like a year earlier, thought of the idea of staying in Miami and trying to use resources I built there to try to make a movie. And I don't know, then time passed and it just sort of felt like once you start hearing everyone's got their own plans and they're going to move somewhere else or go to grad school or whatever, I just, I that went that summer to LA. Uh, I had a couple of friends who were a year older than me and spent a couple of weeks here out sleeping on their sofa and really liked the city and um, Felt comfortable about moving out. It just felt like it was the right thing to do. You know, it's just, a, once again, it's just like a gut thing. And you move here and everyone's working in the film industry. And you kind of meet people. I mean, some people lament that. But for me, I think it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I met the casting director of Stanford. I met her at a, legitimately at a friend's party who's not even in the film industry here out here. You know, so I think that there's just this exciting thing about working in film and then being in the city. So other people, that works against them. They like to be in a city where they're creating their own thing in their own bubble and then give it out to the world. Yeah. For me, I, I kind of like being within the, within the scope of the business. Um, but yeah, so I moved out here right away. Um, I had a job at a production company for six months as like an office runner. That was a really bad experience. Um, oh, yeah, it was a really, it was weird for me. I'd never quit something in my entire life. You know, I was just, like I said, I was this obsessive student. I never quit anything. And I got this job through friend of a friend's, you know, I moved out here, just started meeting everybody I could in a couple of weeks, got a PA position, didn't pay well, but it was at a production company that was making a movie at the time. And it was a really poorly run place. It was weird to never have seen the inside of a production company before and re- be able to acknowledge that. And when I say poorly run, I mean like actually like abusive. Like there's something, I learned the lesson of like, everyone's like, oh, you gotta get your foot in the door. I realize it's good to get your foot in the door, but yeah. not if someone's gonna repeatedly slam the door and crush, <laughs> and crush your feet along the way. And that's what it was. And I, I realized this really strange thing, which was the harder I worked, the more I they weren't gonna wanna push, bump me up because it's really hard to find PAs and runners who are gonna work really hard. Yeah. And so it was this really weird experience where after six months, I got I literally got pushed up against a wall by a development executive once. Maybe this is where my general distaste for development comes from. <laughs> um, and uh, and he got really angry at me for something that he had asked me to do that got him in trouble. And he was, I mean, I it yelled at my face, was like, fuck you, man, like pointing his finger right in my face. I'd never been yelled at before. Not in a way that like, oh, I was this prissy kid who couldn't take it. Yeah. But I'd never been like, you know, I had parents that were like strict, but in ways that were aggressive. Yeah. And it was a weird thing. And I just thought, I, I don't need to be here. Like, I don't need to be... This job isn't worth it. Yeah. And it was a weird thing for me to experience because I, coming from a family of immigrants, I was sort of raised with this ideology of like you work your way up. You start mopping floors and literally the first day I was there, I was I was cleaning, I was dusting blinds my first day there. I didn't mind doing that stuff at all. I was picking up spilled coffee and cleaning up rooms and mopping floors and spending all day in my car driving across town, not being reimbursed enough for gas, all this kind of stuff. And... Um, but you just realize, you're like, wait, this isn't right. This isn't actually leading me to... And even if I get bumped up it's going to be just working with someone i don't really want to work with and yeah it was a weird thing where you start for the first time in your life you start to you start to figure out what quality of life versus work yeah which is something i still struggle with like on a day-to-day basis trying to figure out where 
what is worth it versus the things you sacrifice. Anyway, and it, you know, I mean, I think everyone faces that in yeah. any kind of industry. And so I left that after six months. Um, was, was there any sort of element like of them dangling a carrot for you or something like that? Uh, no, not too much. There was a little bit more in my second in my second job that I'll get to, which is that I shortly after that I left, and then I was like, I'm just going to focus on getting a film made, and um, and then through like a weird series of circumstances, I got introduced to Warren Beatty, um, who's like a hero of mine, you know, and uh, so it was so surreal to meet him, and I met him not knowing, not realizing it was a job interview. You know, we were like talking over like a quick meal with a mutual friend and he was, and he was like, well, so, okay, can you start tomorrow? And I was like, oh, I did. Is this a job interview? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And I got a call and went in and then spent the next, you know, year or so working for him. And I was grateful for it. But that was a stranger situation where it was a really good experience but I wasn't it, in a weird way. There I was, like at the top of the food chain of the film industry, with someone who's so as, as famous as he is, who's made so many incredible films, whose wife is such an incredible actress. The people I was talking to, obviously, can't say, but the people I was talking to every day on the phone were incredible business political leaders. I mean, it was like an amazing experience. But at the time, he wasn't making a film, uh-huh. and it was sort of the strange thing where he'd hired this twenty-one-year-old film school student to come work for him. And it was a hard job. I mean, anyone who's any, any book or story you ever read about him know that. And I mean that respectfully to him, but he's, you know, a hard, hard, demanding. Yeah. Demanding. demanding. Yeah. He's a really hard guy to work for in a good way. Um, But it just wasn't, there was, I was learning more about politics actually at the time than I was learning about, about film. And so, and I really have no interest in politics at all. And you're talking about not necessarily politics of film. You're talking politics. Oh, politics, politics. Yeah. Cause he's such a politically involved guy. And so, uh, for me, I just, it was the same situation, less aggressive one, but like a year later, just being like, you know what, I need to, I need to, I need to, go, I'm not getting a movie experience here. And I need to sort of do, figure something else out. And so when I left working for him a year later, I was like, oh God, like, what am I going to, like, where, you know, what am I going to do? And I started picking up some editing jobs at the time. I started cutting. I met a woman when I was working for him. I met a woman who ended up producing my first two films and she was producing these nonprofit videos and I started cutting those for her and made enough money to sort of float for a bit. Um, and during my two weeks notice when I was like, okay, I totally took away the safety net was when I got, I ended up with a copy of GQ. I'm not the kind of guy that would ever read GQ. I wear the same t-shirt <laughs> and jeans every day. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, I had like some kind of like nerdier magazine that Condé Nast run ran and it like went under and so for the next, my next six issues that I'd subscribe for, they're like, we're just going to send you GQ. So it was like a weird, one of these weird, like Jean-Pierre Jeannot, like series of things, Rube Goldberg and <laughs> things that landed this GQ magazine. And it was during my two weeks notice where I knew I was going to leave. And I just like, oh, I'll open this up one night. And I read this article in there. Uh, and I think it was a combination of the article being very good uh, and reading it at the right time where I was like, oh, I think this would make actually make a really good movie. Um, and so then that's when I was like, okay, great. I'm leaving this job. I'm taking editing jobs to sort of fill in the the gaps a little bit, uh, money wise and pay rent and stuff. And then, and I have this article and I'm going to just start figuring out step by step what I need to do to make that into a movie. Yeah. And that took, you know, three and a half years later before there was a film finished. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, but that's quite a, it was quite a big first film. You know what I mean? Like you had Brian Garrity in it. Yeah. Well, Brian, you know, Brian at the time had shot, he had done Jarhead and yeah. he had done Bobby, but he had not done, he had shot The Hurt Locker, but it hadn't come out yet. Right. And so the first time we met, we were just auditioning people. And and he actually came to audition. He was probably one of the bigger names that had come into audition. And I really respected that he did because yeah. 
I didn't want, I was like my first film and I had this naivety of like, well, why wouldn't someone audition? You know, now I understand the politics, why someone might not audition more, but at the time I was like, well, they don't want to audition, I don't want them. And I had this like, <laughs> independent film finding because it was different, I had an opportunity to, yeah. but he came in and auditioned and, um, and I remember the first time we met, I was like, I can't believe you just worked with Catherine Bigelow. He was like, yeah, man, you know, it's kind of a small movie. I hope people see it. You know, and like, I had no idea. <laughs> that so, It was so crazy. No one on that movie had any idea that two years later they would be like on stage at the Oscars, you know, because it, it was like a year and a half later. Yeah, it was it was so crazy. Best picture beating out her husband. Beating out her ex-husband. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, 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 and strangely, it's so crazy to me. Like, did you know, I think Amer- I, I don't know if this number is true, but American Sniper made more. It's like opening day than Hurt Locker did its entire run. I'm not which, surprised. Which is like, I know, I'm not surprised. <laughs> But it's also just kind of depressing. I mean, that film will, thankfully, it won, so it'll always be around. It'll always sort of have a place yeah. in history. But um, I just think it's so incredible. Yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> that's a yeah. favorite thing. But. So um, there's this little small gap of time that I'm kind of I'm curious to fill in. Oh, yeah. Is that first script of Easier with Practice. So you read the GQ article... And then, and then I sort of naively was just like, how do I do this? So I, I knew a couple lawyers. I knew some people in town because I've been out here for almost two years. So I knew enough people sort of asked for some advice for some few people. A friend of mine was an assistant, I think at ICM. And so he called this writer's agent for me and said, hey, I'm calling from ICM. He didn't say anything to his name, his <laughs> office or anything. So it was, uh, you know, because he, he wasn't lying, you yeah. know, and sort of, okay, so the agent listened to us and the, um, the article had already been on the stands for like three or four months, which usually for magazine articles at that point, then if no one's optioned them, they're, they're gone. You know, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not something that you think is going to come back around again. And so uh, I was eventually able to get on the phone with Davey Rothbart, who wrote it, uh, who had written the article. It was based on this on experience he'd had with this long-term phone sex relationship with this woman he'd never met. And um, it was like a four-page article, a memoirist kind of essay thing. And I got on the phone with him and was just really straightforward with him. It was just like, hey, I don't totally know what I'm doing. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not <laughs> going to pretend that I... But this is why I love your article. This is the kind of movie I want to make. You know, uh, I think I pitched it as like a half road trip and then the second half is like before sunrise, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> and he is just one of the most sincere guys and is still a really good friend. And so I think there was a lot of luck there because he was just like, sure, I'll give you this chance to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, feel... You're talking f- about Davey. Davey Rothbard, yeah. He was like, feel, have some creative freedom, do what you want with it. You know, he was just like a dream situation. Nice. And was also just such a good guy, still such a good guy, that that really... That gave me a lot of motivation and they were really under, you know, had very little money to pay for it, those kind of things. So that then became the basis for the script. And then I just started sending the script out. It was a different time. It was before the economic crash. Um, it was a little easier in this town to sort of be like, I have a script. Yeah. Would you be interested? And I just sort of calling up everybody I knew. And eventually it, came, it took three years. It wasn't easy, but yeah. it eventually did come together and get enough money to, to make it. Nice. Um, and so it was, it was, it was definitely like right time, right place. Also me being just like pushing really hard on people to yeah. say, Hey, we got to do this. We got to do this and, and pulling it together that way. So then at the independent spirit awards, you received yeah. the someone to watch award. Yeah. Honestly, even in a strange way, that one meant a lot to me because it came with a grant and that's what I ended up paying paying for the rights to the David Sedaris story on. But also the movie was nominated for Best First Feature. And the way the Spirit Awards work, if you look every year, usually you know, usually they're like a little predictable. Like usually nowadays they're almost exactly the same as the Oscars. And then one of the reasons I love the Spirit Awards is there'll always be one movie where everyone's like, wait, what the fuck is that movie? (laughs) And we were that movie that year. I think it was like The Messenger, uh, A Single Man... Crazy Heart, Paranormal Activity, and Us. <laughs> so we had like no place being there comparative to those. And it was such a crazy, surreal experience. I A friend had brought me to the Spirit Awards the year before. 
And I was like, oh, this just seems so far away. It just seems so distant. And, um, and it really was like a really great sort of humbling experience to get that award and to be nominated for the other one. Cause even though the movie didn't get very far, it, we played a lot of film festivals and things like that, but it didn't get a lot of exposure. You know, we had to distribute it ourselves. Um, that kind of thing. It was that in a weird way that the award, similar to speaking of the Hurt Locker too, you know, you've got one of those awards where people look to them. It, it establishes the film a little bit. It kind of helps say, oh, it won't, that's the good thing about the awards. It's not like, oh, because I won. It's more like, oh, because now it helps establish the movie from totally disappearing into obscurity. So, yeah. you know, it'll, it'll always be on that list of nominations and those kind of things, which is great because it's a small movie. Um, but it's one I, I I don't know I haven't watched it in forever so I don't know if, I don't even know if I would think it's any good but I know there's a lot in it I'm really proud of I think Brian's really good in it. yeah well it's and, it's good enough for David Sedaris yeah it was good enough yeah true it's good <laughs> enough for David Sedaris so uh, yeah and it was weird because around the time that the Spirit Awards were happening and that I won that grant I was already talking to David and working on getting the rights but all these people were like what are you working on next but yeah. I couldn't say yet so I remember being like so oh. by the time you win this award. You had already, I believe you went to a book signing? Yeah, I couldn't, well, because I got agents then off the film doing, the film did really well oh, at this festival that doesn't exist anymore called Cine Vegas. That's kind of what Next at Sundance has become. Uh-huh. So it, you, Trevor Groth at Sundance, him and Mike Plant used to run Cine Vegas in the summer. And it was sort of like the sum, the Sundance summer where they would play movies that just didn't make it, just didn't make the cut kind yeah. of thing, which isn't really what Next is. It's evolved into its own category now, which I love, but it was sort of the impetus for that, I think. Yeah. Because then Cine Vegas stopped happening, and the next year they started next. And then I and then I went to Edinburgh Film Festival with the movie, and it, and those were within a week of each other, and it won at both festivals. It won sort of the big prize at both festivals, and so that got of attention of some agents sort of started reaching out, and I got the opportunity to meet with someone at UTA, and, and so I had tried to, in the interim, through with Davey Rothbart's help, because he knew David Sedaris a little bit from This American Life, I tried to reach out to David Sedaris because I had this idea for to turn COG into a movie and I knew people had tried to make a movie of his stuff before, but he never wanted to do it because of his family was represented and he never really understood why. And I had this version, which was to say, I don't really want to make a David Sedaris quote unquote movie. I just want to make a movie out of this story. Right. You just happen to have written it. And even though that sounds arbitrary, I think fundamentally it's quite different. I mean, yeah. once you see the movie, you see that it's really not a David Sedaris I think it's more for me, you know. It's based on. It's based on, as opposed to trying to recreate his sense of humor, his tone, his voice, you know, not his look, and, you know, not trying to capitalize on any of those things. And mm-hmm. I couldn't get through to him because his reps, rightfully so, were just like, look, he doesn't do this. He's passed on movies and he just passed on such and such and such and such. And then I thought, oh, well, now I have agents. Maybe that'll help. And still got, they got the same response. And then so one of my agents was just like, your only option left, if you're still not willing to totally close the door, is just go to a reading and give him a copy of your movie. And so I had the end because the movie was about Davy Rothbart. I wasn't a total stranger just saying, take this film. But, you know, and I didn't try to pitch him a movie then or anything because it was a long line of people. I just said, hey, look, here's this movie, you know, I made. It's about, it was based on this thing Davy wrote. And uh, if you like it, I'd love to talk to you. And then it wasn't until like five months later, four months later, that I got an email from him. And he had watched it and really liked it. And then that opened up the doors to saying all the things I just said of why I wanted to turn it into a movie and he and he got it. Yeah. And just sort of, I think it was one of those weird moments in time where he was just like, sure. I mean, he's really gracious. And I think he just said, okay, sure, go do this and go do your own thing and you go make a movie. If you're really just going to go make your own film, I don't, I don't need to have anything to do with it. He's not really interested in filmmaking, you know, or film writing or anything like that. And so, um, 
the the burden of that, and I don't say that in a negative way, was I had the rights to this story that I'd only like dreamed of having. Yeah, which I'm sure a lot of people would have dreamt of having. Oh yeah, because, like so many people want to adapt to stuff. I'm sure. Oh, for sure. You and know? so it was this weird moment. It was this weird illuminating thing where I had this I had this like holy grail yeah. for me. But then I knew I knew the script would be challenging for people to want to make. Because I knew they would read it and be like, oh, this is a lot darker, and it's not as comedic, and it's not really David Sedaris-esque. Um, but it was way harder than I even anticipated. And, uh, in, and, getting and, the, and getting the money. Getting the money for it. Yeah, and I didn't want to cast really big names. I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to like, I didn't want it to be like, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say actors' names, but like the the standard indie movie actors. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I wanted it to be a little bit off the beaten path and be more character actors and and uh, but even then, I did at one point have some bigger names that are in the final film attached, and still couldn't get any. No one wanted to make the movie, and it was like another three years. Here, I just struggled to get the first one. And you kind of think, oh, the first one, and then the second one gets a little easier, and it did not at all. It was harder, and it was and it was really difficult for me because it kind of just felt it was just a little bit of a it was a little soul crushing, and not in the way that I was like a victim to it, but where I just put two. I was so invested in this one project. That's the thing I don't do anymore. I only had blinders on. I only wanted to do this. I needed to do this. And um, and so every rejection was like equal, like doubly painful yeah. because of it. And that's the lesson. I mean, there's just no, the industry is too fickle and too inconsistent, even the indie film industry, to just be like, maybe your first one, it's okay to say, I'm going to do this project. Mm-hmm. But after that point, it's better to diversify a little yeah. bit. Um, and so it was a really, uh, it was really tough. Uh, but it, we did eventually get it together, but it just took a lot. Yeah. It took a lot longer than I thought. Uh, well, and and, and t- we had to make it a lot cheaper than I thought. Yeah. And and just in terms of giving insight into the life of a director of a movie that you have a script and you're trying to make it, when I know you said you have blinders on and it's your one project that you're yeah. focused on, but like in the years that it takes to make that, what are you doing in the meantime to like... I'm cut, s- cutting you know, videos, <laughs> <laughs> cutting industrial videos, commercials, nonprofit videos, yeah. you know. Not really, uh, you know, and struggling quite a bit, uh, you know, to sort of make ends meet, uh, definitely. I mean, I had a little bit of money from the movie winning some prizes, mm-hmm. from Easier Practice winning some prizes, but, um, but yeah, it was really, that was like the, my toughest years out here for sure, was the years in between Easier Practice and COG because it just couldn't get it done. It just couldn't, and I couldn't, did not want to let it go. And, I, and I'm not saying, oh, in hindsight, I should have let it go. I just think if you, you know, I don't necessarily, it's not that I don't believe in regrets, but I do believe in learning from things, you know? Yeah. I think people, some people consider them regrets, but to me, it's like, oh no, I did wrong there, but I wouldn't know I did wrong until I'd done it, you know? And so for me, it's now I, now I try to have a few more active things yeah. going on at once because you just don't, it's too hard. It's just such a hard industry yeah. and money is really hard and you have to make everything for like half the price you think you get to make it for, you know what I mean? So I, with that movie, I thought, okay, I, I mean, I thought it was going to cost I thought because we had Sedaris and we had some known actors and stuff, it, we could get this kind of money. And even then, that was a really modest number. And we had to make it for less than half of that yeah. number. And this was, of course, after the economic Yeah, after that. And that played a big part in it. I mean, indie film changed. Yeah. You know, when we were making Easier Practice for, you know, well under a million dollars, no one really even knew how to make a movie under a million dollars. Now it's like, I don't mean that no one ever did. Yeah. I just mean you would go and like unions didn't really know how to work with you. It was a little unheard of yeah. back in, you know, 2008 or whatever. It just wasn't that common. And now it's par for the course. Now yeah. the $500,000 movie is the kind of standard, you know, that's yeah. sort of the standard thing that a lot of the budget that a lot of these movies get made as. So it definitely, it's changed a lot. 
And I've seen it change a lot, but I didn't. And it wasn't like ego that said, oh, I get to make the second movie for more money than the first one. I, it was just harder than I anticipated. But then again, I look back and I'm like, well, it's a movie about a gay guy becoming a born again Christian <laughs> after a coworker threatens him with a room full of dildos. Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, wait, why was anyone thinking this for? Why did I think this would be easier? But at the same time, uh, the struggles were good. I learned more about really a lot of what I'm talking about is really produ- is more producing type stuff. You know, is the, the re- in a perfect world, you as a director don't do any of that. But really, you always are. And I had a great producing partner on the first two films, but. You always are produ- if your movie's under five million or something. I don't know. I'm making that number up. You're always producing it too. Yeah. You just you don't have the resources to be open. You know. You kind of have to know how much a day costs and how much an hour costs mm-hmm. and how much the union rates are and when you spend more money here or there, the union rates change. Those are the things you just. I just think you have to know if you're going to spend if you're going to be able to utilize as a director every penny the best you can, so that when you do get that crane, you get that chance to get a crane shot, you know how to spend those those production hours utilizing it nice yeah um but at the end of the day yeah you made it through you made i did i did make it (laughs) i I made it and it came out great and it did turn and it did come out at sundance which was the first one didn't get into sundance and it was it was weird that was a part of a little bit of a crushing experience for me not because i just assumed i would get in but i just legitimately didn't really know what the plan b was yeah um and once again talking about those things where you have like a trajectory for yourself and then it goes in a different way. That's kind of where you learn some of the biggest things. And so for me, it was not getting into Sundance. It was like, oh, okay. Oh, shit. You know, I had to sort of understand how you still... And the movie still had a life, the first film. And then the second film getting in was such a good... It was just such a good feeling to have their support. And, you know, you don't want to say those things give you validation. But, you know, it yeah. does. The Sundance... Give, that, that's like the one thing I let I let give me validation in my life. Not love. Not... <laughs> you know what I mean? Not war. Nothing. Sundance, I let give me some validation. Yeah. Um, and it was really, like, humbling to get the movie in there. Um, and to have them be supportive. But, you know, even then, it was a really hard movie to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't... Sundance sort of all big film festivals, not Sunday specifically, they sort of serve the ideology of like, it's either the best movie there or like the worst movie there. And the movies just sort of fall in between, which ultimately are the movies we end up kind of loving the most or the ones we end up responding to the strongest. Yeah. The one, you know, in a lot of ways, the movies where you're like, oh, that was a really good movie. Like, I liked that. that at a film festival, that's almost like the worst kind of reception because people <laughs> just, because they're looking for something that might be an Oscar nominee or something. And that was yeah. never what this movie was going to be. It was always going to be a small weird niche character film. And, um, and so I learned a lot just in terms of how the marketplace works and it all sounds really fatalistic, but just how little money there is out there to buy a film. You yeah. know, it's a really tricky uh, scenario. Um, and the only answer to it really is just, oh, make your movie as cheap as you can. You know, if your movie's like a small character film that's not genre, that doesn't have big yeah. stars, just, just make it as cheap as you can. It saves, it serves everyone better. You yeah. know, you think you, if you think you need more, you, you don't. Or come up with a project you don't need more for. And then when you get yeah. more, make that one, you know. But anyways... So acting for you, I mean, clearly you know what you're doing. You get out amazing performances, and I've seen it in two films now, in yeah. COG and Stanford. I mean, let's start going into Stanford with just the yeah. origins of the project. Like, how did it come about? Yeah, actually, Brian Garrity, who started the Easywood Practice, was friends with this guy, Brent Emery, who was a producer on the film, who owned the rights to the material, to the script. And the script had been... Of the Stanford Of the Stanford Prison Experiment. And written by Tim Talbot. Written by Tim Talbot. And okay. the script had almost gotten made like 13 years earlier, and it didn't happen. Um, and uh, and it just sort of had a couple of false starts since, but it was one of these scripts that you always heard about. Like, people were like, oh, it's a really great script. People on message boards always talk about it. Yeah. And so Brian sent it to me. He said, hey, I think you should read this. 
my friends got the rights, blah, blah, blah. And so when I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with the script. And I read it and I was really like drawn to it immediately. It was the first time I'd ever read someone else's. I pitched on a couple of movies I hadn't written, but it was the first time I sort of read something. I was like, oh, I think I really know how to do this and how to sort of step outside of myself and make something that isn't personal like the first two movies and, and translate this material. I sort of liked, I was excited about the casting opportunities because there's 25 leads, you know? Yeah. Most of them are under the age of 24 and, uh, I'd never been able to put together like a big ensemble like that. And, um, and I was also excited by the challenge of shooting a whole movie in a tiny hallway. And I just found the story compelling. So it was sort of the combination of all that. And then I met with them and really, you know, I was really aggressive about it and really sort of expressed why I really, I, I felt like I was jumping off into the deep end a little bit with it because it was such a challenging project. But that was right before COG got financed. So then COG got financed. I went and made that ah. and then came back and, uh, and so really, Sanford actually came together much faster uh, mm-hmm. for a multitude of reasons. One, we, we immediately got some bigger actors, well, some exciting actors involved. Like Ezra got involved right away and Michael Anirano got involved right away. Names that don't necessarily give you your movie its budget, but enough where people are going to start paying attention. And the story, which has a little bit of, it's got a little bit of horror and a little bit of suspense in it. You know, not really. It's more of a drama, but it has enough of those elements that it's marketable. And so uh, it was just easier to put together. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the next one maybe will be harder or easier. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. But, um, well, let's not get so far ahead of ourselves onto the next one. I know. Okay, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm, 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 trying to, I'm trying to put my mind in there. But no, it's... Uh, but that was the thing that was exciting to me with it was to get to put together so many great actors. Uh-huh. That yeah. was like the main drive. Yeah. And so in terms in general, not just necessarily with Stanford Experiment, but when you get these actors and they come together, I mean, how do you guys craft a performance... And I guess, actually, let's just focus on Stanford. Yeah. Because I know that it's different source material because there's real people being portrayed. Yeah, exactly. Um, such as Dave Eshelman, the, the John Wayne guard. Yeah. Um, and I particularly, Michael Angarano, who plays him, I mean, it was it was really a wonderful performance. And I was yeah. so amped when I came out. Well, of you know, that was, that was the part that I was like... It, this people need to audition for this. I'd met Michael a couple times before. Like I know Michael was immensely talented. I'd seen enough of Michael's work where I would have been comfortable casting him in a movie without seeing him audition. But this character was so specific. This guy who takes on this bad fake Southern accent is kind of the villain of the movie, but needs to be charismatic. It was a really weird thing where like I, we saw a lot of auditions and we saw a lot of ones that didn't work for the part mm-hmm. and they just weren't right. And Michael's was really, like there was. There was no one I would have put in. You know, I would have been if had it not worked out with Michael for some reason, a schedule or something like that. I would have been I would have been kind of at a loss of what to do yeah. because his audition was so specifically what we were looking for. Like he just understood it, his instincts. I think that's what I look for in an audition is the instinct, more, not more so than just like oh the scene was really good. Usually the best audition mm-hmm. isn't necessarily the right person. You know, in a weird way, because I just think you can only get how much can you get out of someone sitting in a room with them for ten minutes. You know, yeah. and so for me, it's like I'm looking for. Part of it's just like aesthetic. Okay, do they fit the role? You know, this was the 70s. So some of these guys that came in with like huge arms and giant, really burly guys, or it's like, no, you don't look like you're from the 70s. You know, you don't, you're not going to fit that. Or, um, or people who looked a little too old, you know, weren't right. So some of it's just that. And then another part, and then a part of it, of course, is for the audition. You want it to be good, but I've seen not great auditions that I cast actors from because you see an element of it that's right. You see a piece of it that's right. Or when you have them do it again, you give them a direction. You say, hey, 
you know what, try it this time, but you know, but you're, but you're a little angrier, you know, you gotta be a little angrier. And then they really take that note and do something different with it. Mm -hmm. Or when you see a hundred people back to back, you know, and someone does something different, really what you, I think you're looking at is you're looking at their instinct, not necessarily exactly what they're going to do on camera. In this case, Michael really did. I mean, it was, it was instinct and a great audition and it was all of those things. Um, but yeah, auditioning is such a weird, uncomfortable process that I, I try to remind myself, okay, I'm not look, I'm not necessarily looking for the person who like cries the most in the yeah. room because yeah, at the end of the day, that's not really, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, there's things, there's certain things actors can do that are really impressive in the moment, but like sometimes I almost prefer looking at tapes than live auditions because ultimately that's what you're going to be. To yeah. me, the live audition is great because you're killing two birds with one stone. You meet the person, you see their temperament, you see what they're like. You get to chat with them a little bit and you get to see their performance, but in a lot and give them some direction. But in some ways I try to erase them from my head and then go back and watch the tape a couple of days later because the tape is what you're going to be seeing, right? There's something, some people, you look at them and you see what they look like and then you like, you look your head over and in the monitor, they look like a totally different person. So for better or worse or more attractive or lesser, some people just, their faces just look different on camera. They have some enigmatic quality that comes alive when you see it through a monitor and it's it's hard. It's the it's the X Factory kind of thing. You know, it's hard to describe. And so yeah, auditioning is a weird thing. And I feel like I learned a lot about it. This film was a combination of people who auditioned, people whose work I'd just seen and felt comfortable casting them, mm-hmm. um, and people who I'd never even seen in stuff before. Yeah. You know, from really so it was really as opposed to you know, like COG, no one auditioned. Everyone was just like I'd seen their work and was totally comfortable casting them in terms of the leads. Yeah. Uh, you know, Corey Stoll and Dennis O'Hare. I'm not going to make Dennis O'Hare audition. Like, what am I, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I've seen the guy do everything and he yeah. has a Tony. Like, what am I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what, what, what are you going to, I think people overvalue, overvalue auditions in some ways, actually. Um, huh. I don't know. It's tricky. It's, it yeah. depends on the movie. It depends on the movie. It depends totally, on the part, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, you mentioned kind of your, your working with young actors. Yeah. And I'm curious because you got Michael, who's... How long ago did you guys make it? We shot it, uh, like, seven months ago or something. Seven Not, months yeah, ago. Really okay. recently, yeah. Like, so, September, October. So maybe, like, eight months ago. So you got Michael, who's 26. Yeah, he was, a little, he was on the older spectrum. And you have Ty uh, Sheridan, who's 16. He was... 17. Yeah, he was 17. Yeah, he was 17. But, like, he hasn't even been to college yet. Yeah. Like, he's not <laughs> of college age. It was a... And, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I'd never worked with people that young before. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I met Ty at Sundance... Um, where you and I met, by the way. We oh, yeah. established that. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we jumped um, straight into it. And, um, but, so, I met, I met, and they, you know, they he's a nice kid, but, like, you know, he's young. He's, he's a young, young guy. But you know what I love and, about that is that... you can use that. Yeah, know? and I love that Ty, and I found this with a lot of kids, and, and Jack and some of the others... Is that they, is that he still is young. You know, there's this thing we kind of compliment kid actors where they're like, it's like he's an adult in a kid's body. And I actually don't like that. Uh-huh. I, I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to still be. One thing I really like about Ty, even though he's been doing all these big movies and he's worked with all these movie stars, is that he still has like the energy of like a young guy. He's still goofy and yeah. joking around. He always plays such serious characters that I thought he was going to be like this adult trapped in a kid's body kind of thing. And he wasn't at all. He was, uh-huh. he was, he was a blast. Like he was nice. really fun. And, and yeah, for me, it was about on this movie, it was just about hire, hiring the right guys, especially mm-hmm. the right guys that when you talk to them, the kind of guys that are going to push themselves that, uh, were willing to do, I wanted it to be a little bit more heightened, mm-hmm. the performances, you know, I didn't want it to be naturalistic. I wanted it to be part of this whole experiment was that it drove these kids kind of crazy and they started not acting like themselves. So yeah. the performances were a lot more affected in a way. Um, COG wasn't too dissimilar, but yeah. 
was like Michael's character is doing this accent and it's kind of ridiculous. And Ezra's character just like loses his mind. And it's like, just talk. I was talking about these guys about like, when you look at performance nowadays, I think is really naturalistic centric. It's really yes. like, can you, does, is a camera just feel like it's not even there? And these are people just having a conversation. And I love that. I love that more than the next, as much as the next, I mean, blue is the warmest color. It's like my favorite movie the last 10 years. But, um, but what, I still miss a lot is that we always reference it to the seventies, but it's sort of the more aggressive, like I felt this needed that kind of energy where the performances are a little more heightened. And so I was really looking for people who were comfortable doing that. And Michael had that in his audition. Ezra has that just in any of his work you see, you know? Um, and, uh, and Ty probably plays a little more naturalistic. He just has one of those like faces. That's very, very photographical, you know, photo photographable, but it was, you know, James Freshville is one of those guys that loves to be, he's like a character actor. You know, he loves to be playing a character. He's yeah. almost going to like walk right out of a Coen Brothers movie or something, <laughs> you know? And like that was, so for me, it was just about this really eclectic group of guys that were all really professional, that all had on-set experience before. You know, most of them had been working since they were really young. Yeah. So there wasn't really, there weren't, wasn't about like un, unprofessional actors, unexperienced people, because we had no rehearsal time. We had one day of rehearsal we spent half the day reading the script and the other half working on stunts and that wow. was it we didn't have any money because it was so many yeah. leads that one day of our production was so expensive yeah. because you had to get everybody there every day and hair and makeup and all this and costumes and everything and so there wasn't time and so we just had to I had to spend I spent I was able to spend time with each guy individually um and to me, I've never been able to do rehearsals. Like, I don't, I'm nervous about doing rehearsals. Like, to the point where I need to do a film that has active rehearsals because I don't even really know what they are. Like, yeah. I just sort of be like, okay, that was great. I wish we were filming. You know, like, <laughs> I wouldn't really know what to do. I'd be, but I think that they're obviously incredibly valuable. Yeah. Um, so you don't have any theater background or anything like no, that? No, never. And I was really nervous working on COG. It was all theater guys. It was yeah. Chris Stoll and Jonathan Groff and Dennis O'Hare. They're all primarily stage actors. And did um, they want rehearsal or? Anything? They would have loved it. We just, yeah, they all showed up. They all showed up on like, I think like Dennis and Corey both showed up like on a Sunday night and we started shooting like on a Monday morning, you know? So it was one of those. Jonathan, I had a little bit of time, but I found rehearsal for me, quote unquote, has just been spending time talking to the actor about the character, uh-huh. talking about the Table individual work. scene. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like just figuring out for me, that's where you get through the work that you won't be able to do on set. But, you know, I also know where it would be really valuable. Like Billy, who. Crudup, who's a big stage actor, um, you know, there was those times where we, we, we both wished, oh, we, you know, he's one of those guys that you can tell, like, every time he does a scene, he's discovering new things about it. Uh-huh. And I think that comes from his theater background. Yeah. And we were shooting so fast. That there were times where him and I were both like, oh, we want more time. We just want, like, I hope I get to work with him again because uh-huh. um, I think he did incredible work in the movie. But I think if we had time, time yeah. together, we could do even more, you know? Um because I love the way he could communicate and the way he thought about a scene and the way he would break it down. Um, and I want to be able to have that experience with an actor. Yeah. Normally it's just sort of jumping into the fire, which has its value too. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the weird thing, right? There's spontaneity and rehearsal and those things all serve each other in different ways. And I've just only known the one way, which is just hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to try the other yeah. way too. So um, at Sundance in your Q&A, you mentioned like someone asked the question of, you know, there's this whole wave of, like, I don't want to say method acting, but, like, yeah. the idea that the the material of the film kind of dictates the kind of mood on set, so to speak. Yeah. So if it's, like, a dark movie, the actors are going to feel dark. Dark, gonna, like, exactly. you said that it was all fun. It was, you it, guys this one was really, well, well, that was designed and engineered, and it was because I felt if you... 
the movie is weirdly so it's about pe- these not non-actors who were paid money to do this experiment where they took on role playing and the role playing got out of hand. So here we are making a film where it's we're taking professional role players, right? That's what actors are, and giving and having them play someone who is playing a role. You know what I mean? So it just would have been so easy to serve the methodology, that kind of approach of really like living and living and breathing the performances. And I didn't stop any actor from doing that, but there wasn't going to be room in this production for the, for the guards to get really aggressive and that for them to want to be like the guards and treat the other actors like prisoners. I just, I just, you know what? I just don't, it's funny. All the directors I love manipulated their actors. I, I, I just not capable of it. I'm just not interested in it. I'd much rather be able to go to an actor in between takes and say, Hey, on that line, when you raised your voice there, it was just, I think you've got to try raising it on the next line. I don't want to have to be like, Hey, calling you in your character's name. You know, I don't want to have to play mind games that much. Yeah. I don't mind. If that's what an actor wants, I don't mind. But I I much prefer the more craft-oriented point of view, which is mm-hmm. being able to actually discuss it and the actual like the actors being aware of what they're doing. Being sometimes I like the actors who are comfortable looking at monitors. You know, it's it, it's just different for each performance. But on this film, it was an ensemble, and there was gonna be no time really to deal with any big personalities. I kind of told everyone ahead of time. And anyone I met that kind of was like the, well, I studied from Eisner and that's what I'm going to do and that's how I work. Even if there were actors I really liked, I just had to be like, this is not, it's not right for this mm-hmm. movie. Um, because there was too many people in every scene and there wasn't going to be time for someone to, to be being like, wait, let me get my sense memories in order. Yeah. You know, like it just wasn't, it wasn't the film for that. And so in a weird way, it ended up being this great combination of guys that were when the camera was on, it was on. And when the camera was off, it wasn't. Like, Michael kept up the fake accent. Things like that. Some of the... There's three Aussies in the film. Some of them would keep their American accent. I mean, things like that that just help. Uh-huh. Because you're in between takes and it's just easy to yeah. stay in the mind state. But nothing like calling anyone their characters' names or where they're still staying. I've worked with some actors that sort of stay in character and... You know, it's fine, but just this movie wasn't going to be that. And consequently, we actually had a really good time. I think because it was kind of frat house-y. With all, it was all guys. <laughs> they were all under the age of 25. They were all having a good time. We were stuck in this little tiny set. You know, the yeah. two options were everyone gets pissed or everyone has a good time. Uh-huh. And and I'm really grateful to these guys being the most some of the most professional people I've ever worked with. You know, so they might have been the youngest, but they were also the most like prepared and the most excited to be there. And it wasn't easy for for these. A lot of these guys had to spend whole days, sometimes whole weeks, without having a line of dialogue, but yet being in every single scene. Like that yeah. takes a lot of patience. And I and I told everyone ahead of time, I was like, you're gonna have to be really patient. Yeah. You're gonna go through days where you don't have a line of dialogue and where you don't even speak. Yeah, and you're also um, going through torture, so to speak. And you're going through torture and you're gonna be yeah. you know, and some of these scenes are really long, or you're in the background of a scene where someone's getting to do some big bravura, you know, yeah. bravura performance and and really all those guys were great. Yeah. There isn't any of the main core 20, 20 guys that I wouldn't work with. Was them. there any sort of there's this really interesting parallel in doing my research and it, it's it's kind of obvious but this parallel between the experiment itself and, and making a film. Yeah, exactly. Establishing a hierarchy arbitrarily yeah. so to speak and then <laughs> And then setting it in motion and not knowing what's going to happen or hoping that something amazing Hoping something happen. good happens, yeah. You know, and so were there any, like, things that popped out to you in doing the film that you were like, wow, this is very much like the experiment itself? Or, like, for instance, like, the seniority of the actors, uh, like, yeah. the ages, did you notice anything like that? Or Not really. It's weird. I, I almost anticipated it more. So when it did nothing like that, everyone was like, oh, you're going to be like... Phil Zimbardo losing herself, or <laughs> you, the director, and you're going to lose your mind. And yeah. It really, honestly, if we had had more time, maybe it would have gone there. But 
we were shooting so fast. I mean, uh-huh. we were doing like 15 pages a day, just flying through everything, just getting... We were on to the next scene before you could even remember what we just... There's some scenes that when I hit the editing room, I was like, I don't remember shooting this. Wow. Where it was like... Because it was so intense and such a... It was a very stressful shoot outside yeah. of working with the actors. Um, it was a very, like, not... It was a really, like, intense experience and not necessarily in a good way. Like, all my films have been really hard because I've all been low budget. But this one in particular was really, really tough. And there were a couple scenes where I was like, when did we shoot this? Whereas normally I remember every take. I'm my own editor, so I always remember mm-hmm. every take, every beat I'm looking for in the takes. Like, I usually start editing right away because it's all so fresh in my head. Um, but, yeah, no, it really stayed pretty civil. It stayed pretty calm and cool. And there wasn't any of these great... There wasn't... I mean, in a weird way, it would make for a more exciting press tour. But there wasn't any <laughs> stories of anyone really like yeah. losing it. Like even like some of the most aggressive physical stuff when Nick Braun has Ezra up against the wall with his baton in the scene where they're all stealing the beds, and that was Ezra even got bruised on his neck, and it was really aggressive. Even then, I had videos on my phone of them like laughing after the takes and like having a black. Like I think one scene Nick was just like improvising a bunch of stuff and getting really mad at him in his face and accidentally spit in Ezra's mouth, and we were just like we called cut, and they were, they were just laughing. I mean, you know, so it was a weird thing. Like even at the peak. Of the aggressive stuff. When we started shooting the end stuff from the movie, like the the camel humping stuff and the bastard stuff, when Chris had to do those push-ups, that stuff we were all more just focused. Mm-hmm. Like we had to get through a lot that day and we were doing two cameras handheld. We just did no resets. We did no we took no time to bullshit between takes or anything like that. We just kept it going to keep the energy. So that day wasn't necessarily like pleasant, mm-hmm. but at the same time we were still like laughing about it yeah. and still generally having a good time. And uh, you know, my previous films haven't always been like that, um, so I tried to appreciate it. But I also didn't. I also told all these guys ahead of time. I said, "Look, I'm not going to be able to have as much one-on-one time with you as I'd like." The previous movies have like Jonathan Groff in every scene and Brian Garrity in every scene. This one is everyone's in every scene. Yeah. And so I sort of prepared everyone ahead of time to be like. Trust you're doing a good job. Trust yourself. Get through these three weeks, you know, with a bit of naivety. Just if you don't hear from me, it's okay. It's because I'm juggling a lot of different things on this one. And, and everyone really got that, mm-hmm. which made it pleasant. Nice. Yeah. You touched on something earlier, and I want to bring it back to that. This, this or maybe you touched on it in the Q&A Sundays, but, but the script was adapted from the real footage. Yeah. You know, real quotes from the actual experiment. And, um... You, and with COG being, you know, adapted from that story and easier with practice being adapted from the GQ article, you know, the, the blend of, of reality versus your portrayal of reality um, when you make a movie, do, do you have any sort of responsibility or obligation okay. to reality? You, you know what? Or... The first two films, I didn't. This one, I did more. It's weird. It's really different. Because the first two films, they're based on memoirs. And mm-hmm. memoirs is already fiction, in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read someone's memoir, you're reading their memories, their perception of it. That's yeah. not their historical fact. They're, they're talking about what they experienced in their life through their filter. You know, you read a lot about, people write a lot about David Sedaris of like, oh, did it really happen that way? Is he exaggerating for comedic effect? And he's said a couple of times, I don't know his exact wording, where he's like, of course I'm exaggerating. He's like, that's because I'm writing it from my point of view. And I'm writing it from the comedy and the way I see it. Um, and so for me, I felt like those movies could be an extension of that. They were fictional films of someone's memoir of themselves. Yeah. So I didn't feel I really owed it to them, which is why Brian doesn't look like David Rothbart and Jonathan Groff doesn't look like David Sedaris. And, you know, I, and I changed a lot. I added characters. I took characters out. Um, with this, I felt it was actually more of a historical film. I felt like the reason we were making it, because there's already fictional versions of this story. Yeah. Right? There's the sci-fi action movies like Das Experiment and, and the remake of that. So it was sort of like, well, why are we doing this? And it was like, oh, we're doing this because the true story is actually 
fascinating enough and compelling enough that we don't have to embellish it much. Yeah. And that was one of the things that excited me about it. Not to say that there aren't embellishments in there. Of course mm-hmm. there are. But there is, if you watch the documentary right after watching the movie, you're, you'll see like, oh my God, the dialogue, the ex- the, the way that they're executing the, the, the language is the similar, the words are the same, the body language, a guy really did put on a fake southern accent, the camel humping really happened, those, you know, the hallway we rebuilt exactly the same. So, it wasn't about creating a documentary or a docudrama or anything like that, but it was about saying, oh no, this all really happened, so let's, and let's not embellish, and if we're going to embellish, let's know why we are. You know, for instance, there's a scene where two characters escape, and we, or try to escape. In real life, they got the doorknob out, they left the door wall, they left the room a little bit, made it like 100 feet out or something. In the film, they like make it all the way down yeah. the hallway. We added that to just, we didn't change the nature of the experiment, it didn't change the order of events, it didn't change any character motivations, it's... We just added it because the movie needed to open up a little bit. It needed to breathe a little bit in that moment. Yeah. So it's, uh, to me, I felt we were still doing the science and the reality of the experiment justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a weird, yeah, the balance was way more in favor of fact yeah. on this film than in the other ones. I guess, what about um, Zimbardo? Um, in watching an interview with him in preparation for this interview, the way that he talks about being in the midst of the experiment, especially with, um, is Christina? Is mm-hmm. it? Um, yeah. He like went to her and he was like, oh, check out this really cool thing that's happening. Yeah. And she was just like, no, no, this is awful. Oh, this is terrible, yeah. And But in the film portrayal, um, Billy Crudup is like, clearly, he knows he's in the midst of an amazing discovery. You know? Yeah, we, and, we play, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, for Phil who read the script was there spent time on set you know has been a part of the movie has seen the film was at the premiere he um yeah it's interesting yeah i think that you know billy looked to him watched tapes of him you know tried to capture his voice a little bit but not totally recreate it not make an impersonation and it was yeah in some cases you know obviously the stuff that happens outside of the hallway the experiment is probably where the most embellishments are and so our sort of take on it was here was this guy who did who got really excited about it. And we do have a scene where she comes in in the film and he's like, I can't wait for you to see. It's been amazing. And he's really excited about mm-hmm. it. But also, I think Billy injected a little bit of the sort of career ambition in there, too. You yeah. Know, a little bit of like, this could be this could be like, there's a scene where he's like, this could be really amazing for me. You know, like this could yeah. be great for me. And that's not even a slam on Phil by anyways. I think it was just a, a dimension that that Billy brought to it that's interesting. Um, So yeah, you know, in a lot of ways it was tricky because Phil was there and was a part of it and I did want to do him justice. I didn't want the film to do him justice and Mm -hmm. show him not... I mean, I think in the movie he's sort of the villain of the movie but I don't think we make him a villainous person. You know, he's just the villain of the series of events but, Mm -hmm. you know, I also told Phil occasionally, you know, a a bunch of times I was like, we're not making the Phil Zimbardo movie, we're making the Stanford Prison Experiment and it's a... It, it was a it was a difficult distinction because Phil is so compelling and Billy is such a good actor. But in a lot of cases, we couldn't see if the movie went on another ten minutes at the end where we see him going back to his normal life or what happens to him in the future. I just feel yeah. like it would have it would have been misguided. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was really tricky. It was really really tricky. But I do think at the end of the day, we created the film and the performances complement the book and complement the documentary. That was the most important thing to me was that it could exist with those mm-hmm. and not exist against those. And I, th- I think it does. I think it does. Yeah. We'll see. Once it comes out and people who really know the experiment well start seeing it, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? But I, I think when you look at films that say based on a true story 
they take so many liberties, and I think our movie took way less. Yeah. Well, for instance, when I saw Foxcatcher, I had the great fortune of of being uh, of working at AFI Fest, where it kind of premiered in oh, LA. Yeah. And I was talking to the Foxcatcher, the guys from the real team Foxcatcher, and they were telling me they were like, "Look, the movie is way darker." Than it was, you know, it makes it seem like everybody was like super depressed to be there (laughs) when in reality it was just this thing that happened and it was strange, but like people were like normal to a certain extent. They weren't like brooding all the time as like, yeah, but, um, and I think some guys from the experiment might watch this and be like, it wasn't that bad. You know I mean? They might, they might, they might, I don't know. I'm not sure because I haven't heard from anybody yet. That could be there because I think there's also something when you put a camera in there and you put score and you put performance, it, it transforms into that's where it becomes fiction. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the reason why movies kind of exist is because if you portray a story with that tone, with that idea of injecting tone into it, like what's the tone of it? And you know, you're telling this story for a reason, whereas it's real life counterpart happened, you know, happened yeah. for whatever reason. And it's, it's a weird thing where, and I always think about, I think about this a lot as a director, like where does tone come from? Like what is tone? Like, Strangely, I think most of it comes from editing more than anything else. You know what I mean? Is where a lot of editing and sound design is sometimes where we come, where we think of what we think of a filmmaker mm-hmm. or what their style is. A lot of it comes from that, comes from how long a shot is or how short it is. Um, I mean, a lot of it comes from the photography too, but I think more of it comes from the editing than we realize. But I'm also an editor, so maybe I'm speaking, saying that from that point of view. But yeah, it's, and it's an interesting thing because I always felt like you watch the documentary footage they had one camera set up, you know, that you see in the film, sort of from a distance. And the footage isn't particularly good. The cameras were kind of blurry. So the stuff looks, you know, it looks like, oh, this was really bad, but it doesn't feel harrowing mm-hmm. when you watch that stuff. But yet, you know, we put the camera on the inside of it and you give actors and they're trying to bring weight to it into the moment. It becomes really, really intense. And and so whether that stayed true or not, or if people watch the film, they're like, well, it wasn't really that intense. Or if someone said, well, I didn't really cry there. Yeah. Ooh, I think that's where you just start getting to the blurry level of like, well, this is this is art and not a recreation. I- ironically, that's what people talked about. Was the prison an experiment or was it a simulation? Is the film a film or is it a simulation? You know, and I think that uh, I wanted it to be a film, yeah. but I did want it to have its foot deeper in fact, I think, than most movies are. Yeah. Um, most historical films are. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the analogy I always use is Lincoln, like at the end when they're voting. That they made they made that like that stuff that's like on voting record and they just made that up like they made some people give different votes than they really did and so I'm like well that's like American recorded history in this case we're like you know it's I do think it's an important part of history and I wanted it to be a film that could stand you know, with that but it also isn't uh, it also isn't claiming to be I don't want it to ever replace the book I don't want it to replace the documentary you know I want it to be just be alongside it uh-huh. do you have like an ultimate reason why you wanted to make this movie in terms of like was there a statement you wanted like kind of a flag you wanted to plant in terms of the state of prisons and no you know i I definitely have like some opinions but i really wanted to make a film that i thought like god people are still arguing about what this experiment meant 40 years later like you know the new yorker just published an article about oh it didn't really mean what we think it meant but it meant these things instead so we're still arguing about about this more than 40 years later that I was like, I don't want to make a film that explicitly states that either. You know, I didn't want it. That's why we, we never say the words Abu Ghraib in there. We never really talk about ethics in the film. Uh, we never really... It, I wanted to just sort of lay it out there. 
and and then have, let people infer from it what it will. Because I do think every five years or so this experiment comes up, whether it's police brutality, prison issues, Abu Ghraib, you know, the fast the fast food hoax that Craig Zobel made the film about. Um, you know, those things, this, this, this experiment comes up consistently all the time. And so I wanted the film to sort of sit back enough that it could hopefully have create a more universal, um, the, the people could leave the, leave the experiment just like they leave the movie, just like they leave reading about the experiment, having differing opinions on what it really even means. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. I guess my last question is, <laughs> how did you feel when you found out there was also a movie at Sundance about <laughs> the Milgram experiment? <laughs> I, well, I had been familiar with that film. I had heard about it. I was just like, oh my god, what are the chances of two like 60s, 70s? And they went to they went to high school together, I think. Milgram, Milgram and Zabarda. Or college, I can't remember. I could be getting you can look it up online. They so there was, you know, there were contemporaries of each other. I just thought, oh my god. But then I heard that approach of that film is very different. You know, I think it deals with his shock tests at first. I haven't seen it yet. And then I think it becomes more about his life. Mm-hmm. I think he there's a lot of like uh, I think it's a more avant-garde film. Like I think there's a lot of uh, talking to the camera and stuff shot against projection screens, things that sound really cool. I haven't seen it yet, so I can't say. And and Michael, the director, was really cool to me. We we talked a little bit at Sundance. Um, yeah, it's one of those weird things where just the two movies. I mean, this movie was this movie was forty years in the making. That one was like fifteen years in the making. They just happened to happen at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was weird. It was a weird thing. Um, probably won't be the last time it happens. You know. Yeah. Um. And so, just to round things out, I mean, next for yeah. you is the is acceleration. Yeah, I've got a couple of things. The only thing I can talk about now right, is is um, acceleration. It's uh, these two producers, um, uh, Teresa Park and then Peter Safran, who produced The Conjuring. And I was me and my buddy Adam are writing it together. It's an adaptation of this really good book by this Canadian author. Um, and it's a great, just, it's weird because after having made a film that does have a lot to say about the state of the human mind, and I think this movie, Acceleration has a lot to say, but it's, it's trying to just be escapism. It's trying to just be like a fun thriller first and foremost, which in a weird way, it's, it's like, you know, pop versus like classical music or something like that, you know, in a weird way, it's not necessarily easier to make. I've, I mean, I've never done it. My first two films are really personal. This one's dealing with really dark themes of humanity and stuff and Acceleration has some darker themes and character things going on, but ultimately it's trying to be like a fun suspense movie first and foremost. And so I'm kind of nervous because I just have to kind of remind myself, wait, this is supposed to be like a fun movie to watch. And so it's sort of a fun YA thriller. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, if Disturbia was in line with Rear Window, this is sort of in line with like Seven or Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. in terms of its tone. Okay, and but it's and it seems like kind of a departure for you in terms of, young, you know, young adult fiction. Yeah, it's, it's definitely... Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a departure. I think it's like the the fun I had on Stanford shooting the stuff that's more like sequences as a director, the stuff with the planned camera shots and things storyboarded out, and sort of the 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 the, the filmmaking uh, being a more integral part of telling the story uh, is what I was sort of excited about. So going and doing a genre film, then hopefully being able to use those tools will be really fun. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's and and, and you know, and I'm, but I would love to be able to be that guy who goes and makes like a fun thriller. I love to just, hey, I just want to keep on making movies. But B, if I can go make like a fun commercial thriller and then go back and make a small character movie, yeah. work with unknowns or whatever it might be, then that's great. Like I, those are the directors I admire the most are the ones that you don't totally know what the tone of their next thing is going to be. And you don't necessarily watch their movies and go, oh, that's that guy made that. You watch an Ang Lee movie, he changes from each film. His style changes with the film. And I think I'm more, even though a lot of my filmmakers have really distinct, favorite filmmakers like everybody Tarantino and whatnot and Paul Thomas Anderson have really distinct styles 
um, I'm really drawn to this idea that I adapt to the material. Um, that to me sounds sounds exciting. So trying to go and put on the hat of making a movie when I was like a kid and watching Hitchcock films for the first time or like watching Speed for the first time or these, it's not an action film, but you know, these kind of movies that I like loved so much that were like suspense thrillers and trying to create, get some of that energy into something that's contemporary. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me for hopefully not an extra long episode. episode. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, we got one last thing. One last business. thing? Okay. Uh, the, the sign off all my guests oh, yeah. have done it since and I do not oh. plan on stopping now let's, let's sign it off so this is Side Kickback Radio watch off <laughs> <laughs> put the laugh in at the end so it doesn't sound like I'm an asshole <laughs> I was trying to do Ben Stein style